The following podcast is presented by the Women in Comedy Festival as part of the WICF Podcast Network. Check us out at WICF.com slash podcast. This is Adapted with Anna and Sam. We love books and we love movies. Warning, here be spoilers. with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam. In this podcast, we talk about a book, we talk about a movie or TV show based on that book, we play some fun games, and we encourage you to read and watch along with us. In this episode, we will be talking about Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier and two adaptations, the 1940 black and white film and the 1997 miniseries. What did Uh, you think, Sam? So for the first time, I have a new appreciation for movies that cut out extraneous scenes from the book. (laughs) Um, I feel like the miniseries did very little to take advantage of the film medium versus the written word. Well, because it was a miniseries and they had to stretch it out and give you your money's worth. I know, and it's really funny because, like, Pride and Prejudice, six episodes, each each episode, like, an hour. Watch it all the time, over and over again. Don't feel like there's any moment where I'm just like, oh, God. This one, I was like, can it just end now, please? <laughs> so not a huge fan of the miniseries. Not really. Yeah. Despite the casting. <laughs> what about uh, you? My quick take is um, nice and brief. <laughs> it's always the husband. <laughs> if it's not the husband, though, it is a butler. It's never the butler. <laughs> Ever, that's like such a cliche, but it was the butler one time. Right? And, that's and honestly, took. in real life, it's always the husband. It's never the butler. No. It is always the husband it's always the husband the husband did it yep <sighs> all right so is it time for some six degrees yeah, yeah. do you want to uh, go first i would love to so rupert did you do your homework no then you can't play yet again we do have a zero degree situation Ugh. we keep Be- doing this for ourselves i know <laughs> we're, we're choosing very different films from very different genres and yet rupert yep. quiet um uh, Geraldine James, who played Cecilia in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, of course, plays Sister Beatrice. Uh, she's not like a nun. No, she is the sister, sister. Yeah. of Maxim, whose <laughs> name is Beatrice, in the 1997 miniseries. And I have to say, I actually, so I did a version of Six Degrees, and I started with Julian Sands, <laughs> who was in the last two movies we did. He was. But then I came up with a better Six Degrees, which I'm, I am very proud of. Very nice. Not to oversell it. So... <clears throat> We will start with Stellan Skarsgård, who was in Hunt for Red October, hey! which we did in a previous episode. Um, so he is in Hunt for Red October with James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones is in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. Nice. And Eddie Murphy is in one of my favorite 80s movies, which is sadly not based on a book, Golden Child. And if you haven't seen it, it is a very fine movie. Very quotable, and will explain so much about my childhood. It is pure 80s. If you put together, like, Golden Child, Willow, and High Spirits, I think you will just, like... Get you. Get me. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the Jim Henson canon. Like, that put together is, like, what I grew up with. Um, So, of course, Golden Child also stars Charles Dance, <laughs> who is one of our Maxim de Winters. Mm-hmm. But wait, there's more. Charles Dance is in a movie called Plenty with Meryl Streep, who is in Kramer versus Kramer with Dustin Hoffman, who was in 
marathon man with our other Maxim de Winter, Larry Olivier. Nice. Thank you. Very I nice. I spent far more time on that than anything else. <laughs> I spent more time on that than I spent watching the miniseries. Nice. That's saying something. <laughs> Sam, what's your six degrees? <laughs> um, so mine starts out with Rudy Mara. Uh, okay. She was in Side Effects with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm. Catherine Zeta-Jones was in Chicago with Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu was in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. <laughs> Not based on a book. Oh, what no, a shame. I know. With Jacqueline Smith. Jacqueline Smith was in The Users with Joan Fontaine, who is one of our second Mrs. De Winters. Yes, she, she is. the first one. Joan Fontaine was in Ivanhoe with Elizabeth Taylor. And Elizabeth Taylor was in A Little Night Music with Dame Diana Rigg. Wow! Who was in Mrs. Who's Mrs. Danvers in the second one. So you can... All right. So first of all, Sam, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. You connected both Rebecca's. I did. Which usually I'm the one who doesn't say things. (laughs) But was that an all-lady six degrees? Yes, it was. Round of applause. Thank you. Well done. I was inspired by the female author and the female narrator. Yeah. We should celebrate that. Sadly, no female directors. No. Has there ever been a Rebecca with a female director? Not that I'm aware of. Hmm. But I haven't actually looked at it. I mean, there have been, like, radio plays. Yeah, like, yeah. So, in my summary, I mentioned, like, how all the ways it's been adapted. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Speaking of which, Sam, well done on the six degrees. Oh, thank you. And you as well. Would you like to do your book report? I don't mind if I do. Thanks. Um... It's a little long. I tried to gloss over a lot of the beginning. Uh-huh. Wait, um, are you are you criticizing the 1997 miniseries for being too long and then doing the same thing, Sam? Yes. Okay, fair enough. And I actually cut a lot out. Uh, originally published in 1938, Daphne du Maurier's novel Rebecca has never actually been out of print hmm. since then. Uh, and also, fun fact, du Maurier actually faced two plagiarism allegations from an author in Brazil and an Edwina L. MacDonald in the U.S., but she was able to successfully refute the allegations. Um, the novel has also been adapted into film, television, radio, theater, and opera form. There's an opera of Rebecca? There's an <gasps> opera. Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait. Yeah. Is it called Rebecca? I believe so. Okay. But probably in another language. I'm never going to see it, but no. that's still really cool. Right? It's so cool. Um, so Rebecca begins with one of the most famous opening lines in literature. Last night, I jumped, I went to Manderley. I'm pretty sure you've heard this parodied in any sort of movie. It's everywhere. It's a great start, though. It really is. It's like, it really just draws you right in. Yeah. There's so much packed into that one sentence. Yeah. You're just like, just, ugh, so good. Um, And the villainess, Mrs. Danvers, is perhaps one of literature's most recognizable as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like she features in any number of parodies of evil housekeepers. Oh, yeah. So if you see an evil housekeeper basically probably based on mrs danvers i'm nodding in agreement yes which i have to remember it's a podcast (laughs) i have remember we always explain what i'm doing so um so our unnamed narrator and she's never named throughout the book which um i actually read a note from daphne du Bourier, and she set herself this challenge to see if she could not give her character a name because she couldn't think of one like how we challenge ourselves with our six degrees yes Daphne de Maurier said de Maurier said I'm not gonna name my narrator exactly so because she chose first person narrative is a little bit easier um but there is one moment where I think it's actually in just the miniseries and not or the book or the movie but not necessarily in the book where Beatrice says to Maxim so how is the child 
in reference to their narrator. Oh. And you're just, first of all, I'm just like, oh, seriously, could you make it any more obvious that she's, like, super young? And then second of all, like, it was um, right to get around the fact that she has no name and they didn't want to give her a name in the movie. And they couldn't think of another way to rephrase that? Nope. Hmm. Yeah, no. Um, so our unnamed narrator brings us readers along with her as she travels back to Manderley in her dreams. Manderley has become an empty shell of itself, overtaken by the wild, despite momentary glimpses of what it used to be. And that's when we learn Man- Manderley is actually no more. Um, currently, our narrator and her companion slash husband live abroad, running from the past and its pain and memories. But it is through our narrator's memories that we come to learn her story. Um, in the past, our young only 21 narrator is paid companion to mrs van hopper whom nobody likes or admires despite mrs van h thinking otherwise she has friends galore if you ask her mrs van h is a great character she really is and i have to say like i'm sure you'll get to this but faye dunaway was just oh fantastic i have opinions about faye dunaway (laughs) good ones they're good good ones good ones mrs van h is a snob who collects people of distinction as friends i say in quotes they are staying at the same hotel in Monte Carlo as Ms. as Maxim de Winter, owner of Manderley and recent-ish widower. Mrs. Van Hopper forces a reintroduction of sorts between herself and Maxim, and so our narrator is brought into his notice, a man twice her age. And there's heavy focus on the age difference throughout like the entire like book. Like, he's exactly twice her age, right? He's, like, they yeah. spell out, he's 42, he, she's, she's 21. Yep, exactly. And so that, just remember that fact as we come further down the line when we talk about other things yes it's it's gonna come up again okay i just want to point out 21 is a legal adult yes like not even like oh on the border like 21 is a legal adult yep okay so i have encountered we have encountered Mm -hmm. much skeevier age differences oh yes i'm not saying it's nothing no no but it's not the grossest no it's not the grossest and i i have no problem with the age difference as it is. Per se. Per se. Um, my major concern is, and I know this is a discussion period, but it's just like, it's such a focus of every character except for her. Yeah. She she accepts it. She's like, whatever. It's, you know, but Maxim is like, oh, you're such a child or, you know, I'm too old for you. I'm too stiff for you. Beatrice, how's a child? You know, everybody's just so focused on the age difference except for her. her. And I'm like... Trust her. Let her, like, you know, give, let her trust her own feelings and Right. Whatever. She is an adult, and exactly. she can decide who she finds attractive. Exactly. Nope. So that's fine. That's fine. It's moving on. That's my that's my soapbox. I'm going to get off it now. Right. I'll stop interrupting. <laughs> I'm lying. No, I know we're, we're I'm lying. We're going to interrupt each other. It's what we do. Until we are buried in graves next to each other. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My husband will be on the other side. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, so where am I? Oh, here we are. So Mrs. Van Hopper comes down with the flu, which leaves our narrator with plenty of free time. She finds herself having lunch with Maxim after she spills the face of anemones on her own table. From there, she and Maxim become bosom companions, taking drives all over Monte Carlo, and that first day climbing to the summit of some road that is familiar to Maxim, but not necessarily full of happy memories for him. While there, Maxim becomes a stranger to her, um, standing on these cliffs, but thankfully he recovers and they leave. And you're just, and it's funny too because, like, in the in the book, like the scene is like kind of there, but not necessarily the the most important scene. Mm-hmm. But it comes becomes such a feature in both movie versions. Yeah, which is interesting. I'm sure you'll get into that. But I was just like, I'm like, I don't know what it is about the scene that like 
it's like the both the movies focus on it so much. Well, I think it's our first insight that something's not necessarily right. That there's Maxim. there's something going on for Maxim. Yeah. So Maxim. Oh my god, the way Maxim. they said his name. Um, okay, so our narrator falls in love with Maxim during all these little drives and luncheons together. She hides all of this from Mrs. Van Hopper, of course, who continues to be ill with the flu. Um, on one excursion, our narrator... Get your flu shot, people. Right? Don't be like Mrs. Van Hopper. Oh, God, no. Ugh. Um, on one excursion, our narrator wishes to be 36 and in a black dress and pearls, you know, a more sophisticated type lady, and Maxim is all, you wouldn't be here with me if you were 36 and in a black dress with pearls. Mrs. Van Hopper decides they need to leave Monte Carlo immediately due to a family medical emergency. Our narrator panics at not being able to say goodbye to Maxim, so stalks him down finally on their day of departure. Maxim romantically proposes marriage. Okay, it's the complete opposite of romantic. Mm -hmm. She first thought he was hiring her to be his secretary. It's easy to confuse the two. It really is. I mean, it happens to me all the time. Oh, yeah. How many marriage proposals have I had? Yeah. that I thought were job offers and vice versa right exactly I mean all of my job offers are like oh you want to get married and they're like no I just want you to work yeah, here HR people really shouldn't get down on one knee when no. they offer you a they're, job it's and they confusing. should probably put their ring back in their pocket yeah yeah um, but the two agree to marry and our narrator will live with him at Manderley and not with Mrs. Van Hopper in New York Mrs. Van Hopper of course has the best parting shot you haven't flattered yourself he's in love with you the fact, that the, the fact is that Empty House got under his nerves to such extent he nearly went off his head. He admitted as much before you came in the room. Way She's to go, Mrs. Van Hopper. such a bee. So Maxim and the second Mrs. De Winter, our narrator, arrive home to Manorly, and we finally meet Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, as well as all the other servants, of course. Yeah. Like you do. Some of them have names. Yeah. Frith is the best. I love Frith. <laughs> our, I love Frith in every version. Yes. Yes, that is a true statement. Um, our narrator doesn't exactly make a fantastic first impression, and so Mrs. Danvers sets her up as the enemy. She will bring this woman down. Mm-hmm. It's the last thing she does, which basically is. Uh, Mrs. Danvers does her best to convince our narrator that she will never live up to Rebecca, and since our narrator already had these thoughts on her own, it doesn't really take much convincing. Um, our narrator know- just knows that everyone misses Rebecca, and they're all sorry to have to deal with our narrator instead. And I have to say... Um, I don't really get into it, but our narrator envisions a lot of things because of her social anxiety. There's a lot of elaborate fantasy sequences yes. of her imagining, like, interactions going horribly wrong or the things people are saying about her yes. or thinking about her. And they're very um, true to what that what that kind of person does. And yeah. so I really, you know, I think um, the novel does a really good job of kind of putting you in, in the narrator's position so you kind of you're sympathizing with her because this is like and it's not like she gets any reassurance from anybody else in her life that well does anyone else really know or understand no they don't try to get to know her they don't try to understand what she's going through but Um, even like her people who care about her like like maxim or or beatrice Beatrice. her new sister-in-law like they know she's shy but i don't think they understand what okay so this is actually something I, I was going to ask you if you found in your research like did they have a definition for social anxiety in 1938 not that i found so it's interesting that i feel de Maurier captures it really well mm-hmm. this thing that didn't even have a name at the time right and so it's like i think what 
she calls it is shyness and like even the narrator says it's because she's shy and so they don't really understand that it's it's more than that right it's people are like i thought you would outgrow shyness. this yeah it's, like, it's not something you outgrow yeah just fyi <laughs> speaking as someone who is 36 and wearing black satin and in pearls and still feels social anxiety soon Sam is wearing black satin and pearls right now in yes. honor of the occasion. I, I very much am. I wish. Um, okay, so then we meet Maxim's sisters, Beatrice and her husband, Giles, Frank Crawley, Maxim's estate manager, and Maxim's gran. Each of them, most notably Frank and gran, make some inadvertent or in gran's, gran's case quite blatant remark that our narrator interprets to mean she is inferior to Rebecca. Frank actually calls Rebecca after being asked by the narrator, the most beautiful creature he ever saw in his life. Doesn't Frank also have some comment about, like, kindness and humility and gentleness is worth more than all the wit and beauty in the world? Yes. And so... He's trying to be nice. The thing, and like, exactly. So, both with Beatrice and Frank, and sometimes Maxim, they all say things that are meant to lift up the narrator, but because of her social anxiety and her already kind of lack of... Um, self-confidence she misinterprets Mm -hmm. and so one of the one of the things with this novel is there's very much the the theme of communication Mm. and lack of and misunderstanding and that's a huge part of this novel like so much of where the narrator ends up is because she is so in into herself Mm -hmm. that um you know she the questions she asks people misunderstand or misinterpret themselves and so the answer they give her is what she's expecting yeah when it's not necessarily what they would have said if they had if she had asked the question in a way that you know would have gotten to what she really wanted to hear right not unless you wanted to hear but what she was looking to expecting to hear. to hear and certainly like she and maxim knew each other for a few weeks before they got right. married so they have not established they don't know each other at all no i mean they love each other they care about each other but they don't know how to talk to each other right. and i and and i think it's really really telling that the narrator talks easily most easily with frank yeah good old frank good old frank and that's because frank is just very straightforward like there's no games with frank there's no um you know kind of bottom line with frank mm-hmm. and she he doesn't do jokes so he's never ever going to be joking around with somebody so if you ask him a question he's going to give you his answer and he's not going to try and joke around with you or anything like that so what you what you see is what you get with frank Mm -hmm. and that is what she's most comfortable with which i think is very telling so life with maxim isn't necessarily the easiest either for all the reasons we were just saying um he falls into broody moods and won't explain why he gets angry when our narrator follows jasper the dog to a cottage down by the bay or when our narrator dares to say he only married her because no one would gossip about her. He treats her like a child more often than not, patting her on the head and patronizing her. <sighs> he also criticizes her shyness as something to be got over. Oh my god. Um, so again, it's they don't know each other yet, and there isn't the space for them to get to know each other because there's all the servants, there's Maxim's life. Like the When she first gets to Manderley, one of her comments says she didn't realize it would be so routine. Mm. 
Yeah. And so there's there's the estate to look over and all that stuff. So their time is very limited. It's it's and she's kind of forced into well, this is the way the first Mrs. De Winter did it. So exactly, and, and she's, she's not strong enough in her own self confidence yet to be like, no, I'm gonna do it this. I'm way. gonna do it this way because yeah. one, she doesn't know, and two, she's she doesn't want to rock the boat and make everybody hate her. Right, but then she's stuck. Exactly. She's stuck. Oh, Mrs. De Winter always used to spend her mornings in the morning room and yep. she's in this room where every single thing was picked up by Rebecca. Exactly. And Rebecca touched. Yeah. And yeah. She doesn't feel brave enough to like No. Do anything about it. Exactly. And then, and I think that's also very telling of the social anxiety. Mm. Is like one of the major facets is you want everyone to like you. It's tough. Ugh. Um, Maxim goes up to London one day and we meet Jack Favell, Rebecca's cousin. He is sneaking around Manderley to meet Mrs. Danvers, or as he calls her, Danny. Uh, Favell unnerves our narrator as he hits on her and asks her not to tell Maxim he's been visiting. Apparently Maxim wouldn't approve. Uh, one day after Maxim returns, they are overrun with visitors and the subject of the annual fancy dress ball, dress ball, a.k.a. costume party, comes up. Yes, fancy dress in British means costume. costume. Yes. Every summer, Manderley would host everyone in the, in the town and beyond at their annual fancy dress ball. Maxim hasn't hosted one since Rebecca's death, death, and the visitors think this event would be the perfect thing to fet his new bride. Sorry, I forgot a note, a word in my notes, and I was like, what did I try to say here? <laughs> Who wrote this? Ah! Maxim agrees, begrudgingly. Our narrator then vows to Frank and Maxim to give them the surprise of their lives with her costume. Then it's the day of the ball, y'all! Our narrator still refuses to reveal her costume to anyone except her maid, Clarice, which, of course, can only end happily for her, right? These things never go wrong. Right? Of course. Nope, but as we expect, the costume that had been recommended by Mrs. Danvers is not well-received at all. And it is later revealed that Rebecca wore that exact same thing at her last ball. Oh, Mrs. Danvers. Right? I mean, why would the narrator be surprised? her at every turn. Ugh. Our narrator plans to hide in her room all night until the shame of potential gossip drives her to change gowns and make her way downstairs. She and Maxim do not speak with each other the entire night, and he does not spend the night in their room. Um, the next day, our narrator finds herself in Rebecca's suite, where she suite where she is joined by Mrs. Danvers. Listening to Mrs. Danvers speak of Rebecca, the second Mrs. De Winter comes closer and closer to jumping out a window to the rocks below when she is saved by the firing of rockets. The rockets mean a ship has run aground in the bay. It has actually run aground on the shipwreck of Rebecca's boat, and divers discover a body in the ship's captain cabin. Captain. Cabin. They discover a body in the ship's captain. <laughs> I mean, how'd they do that? That sounds. That sounds that like sounds an intriguing. interesting. Um, I don't, like I don't know. symbiotic. <laughs> what? What? It's only become sci-fi. It's like somebody's like parasitic twin. maxim discloses this is actually the body of his first wife rebecca (gasps) dun 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 oh my god this is the best part so maxim reveals he shot rebecca in basically the same breath he finally confesses his love for his second wife oh yeah so hot tip for you men out there confess to murdering your first wife while also confessing your love if you want your woman to love you more than she did before Sam, that's the worst advice you've ever given anyone. Not according to Daphne du Maurier. You know what? Daphne du Maurier is dead. I mean, that's not her fault. She's dead. She is dead. Yes. Yeah. 
not her fault. Everybody dies. Yeah. Well, and you die faster if your husband murders you. (laughs) Uh, He also eventually confides that he hated Rebecca, and she essentially blackmailed him into remaining married to her after revealing her true, horrible nature on their honeymoon. Maxim shares that Rebecca took lovers, meeting up with them in her cottage by the bay, including her cousin Favelle. Ew. Cousins. Right? Gross. And that she basically ran with a rough crowd. She gambled, you know, things a woman would never do. Or should never do. I was gonna say. I definitely know ladies who do that. Right? And there's nothing wrong with it, people. There's a new inquest into the cause of death for the real body of Rebecca, which contains several shocking reveals. Oh, do tell. Rebecca was locked in the cabin below, and the boat did not capsize due to the storm. Oh, what? Right? Instead, there were three holes driven into the bottom of the boat, and the something-somethings were left wide open. I was actually going to go replace the something-somethings, what they were called, but I forgot to go back to the book. <laughs> just just read the book. It's a word. It's a real word. It's an I just English don't know word. What it, is. it starts it like with an S. Capstones or something. I have no idea. I pictured giant bathtub plugs but i don't think that's yeah, what it basically what is. they are it's the pipes to fill the sinks and stuff like that so you have running water on the boat right that's all Those they were, were wide open. open okay so something somethings were wide open they, both <laughs> something something was left wide open both life were... advice from sam <laughs> don't leave your something somethings open and don't drill three holes in your in the bottom of your boat well it depends on what your plans are i can think of nothing good that's going to come with that I mean, if you're trying to hide the body of your first <laughs> wife that you murdered, maybe you should. Okay, but there's so many other ways to get rid of your wife than murdering her. Look, I'm not disagreeing with you, but <laughs> if you've already murdered your wife, here's what you do. You drill three holes in the bottom of your boat and, leave and you something, leave something, something open. open. <laughs> I mean, duh. You can't undo murdering your wife. No. So you gotta make the best of it. You do. Leave your something-somethings open, people. Right? It's really that simple. (laughs) Uh, Remind me to never go sailing with you. Okay. Done. (laughs) Um, And then our narrator faints at just the right moment, which prevents Maxim from losing his temper with the coroner and giving everything up. Oh. And revealing, I shot my wife, you dicks. Well-timed faint. Right. So the verdict comes back as suicide. Right. That Rebecca left her own something-somethings open. Yes, and drilled her own holes in the boat. Okay, fair enough. After the inquest, Favelle reveals he received a note from Rebecca to meet at the cottage the day she died, and does his best to blackmail Maxim, who calls his bluff and involves the local magistrate, Colonel Julian. Colonel Julian is, of course, on Maxim's side, but still feels it is his duty to get to the truth. Look, old, rich, white dudes gotta look out for other old, rich, white dudes. Right? You can't let the sleazy people get away with these kinds of things. Right. Just because they slept with his cousin doesn't mean he's, he's a trustworthy guy. Yes. That is, <laughs> that's a fair assessment. If someone sleeps with their cousin, they might not be a trustworthy person. I mean, he's also drunk when he's going through all of this, so it's hilarious. Yeah, he is super drunk. But also super, like, He's super creepy. Gross. Super creepy. Um, through testimony, again in quotes... From Favelle and Mrs. Danvers, they learn Rebecca had visited a doctor on her last day in London. Colonel Julian, Maxim, the second Mrs. De Winter, and Favelle travel to see this Dr. Baker, who tells them Rebecca had advanced cancer and would not have lived more than a few months. Uh, so C- Colonel Julian decides the su- suicide verdict of the inquest will be left to stand, and C- 
Colonel Julian then informs Favelle that any additional blackmail attempts will not be tolerated. Uh, Maxim and our narrator rush back to Manderley, with Maxim experiencing a dark foreboding that something terrible is about to happen. As they approach Manderley, they see a bright light opposite the horizon, and the book ends with the impression of Manderley in flames. The sky above our heads was inky black, but the sky on the horizon was not dark at all. It was shot with crimson like a splash of blood, and the ashes blew toward us with the salt wind from the sea. And thus ends Rebecca. And thus ends Manderley. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. But not the marriage of Maxim and Mrs. Se- the second Mrs. No, De Winter. they live happily ever Ish. after yes. in hotel rooms. Yes, they do. Uh, so, <sighs> Anna, do you want to tell us about the movies? I would love to. So, as you... As you pointed out, Rebecca has been adapted numerous times for film, television, and radio. Um, and an opera. I didn't include that in my list. Right. My research apparently was... I was on a different Wikipedia. <laughs> so, the first and probably best known is the 1940 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, and Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers. Rebecca is played by Niles Cranes's wife, Maris. That was a Frasier joke. Oh yeah. Okay. So Sorry. maybe you should cut that part out because <laughs> no, that was not a good. <laughs> that was leave your something somethings open, people. Uh, we also watched the 1997 miniseries starring Charles Dance, mm-hmm. Amelia Fox, and Dame Diana Rigg as Mrs. Danvers, who will always be Dame Diana. Rigg. Dame Diana. So both the film and the miniseries follow the plot of the book very closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitchcock's film opens with that famous narration last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again and a lovely dream sequence as we follow the second Mrs. De Winter's dreamer through the gates and along the winding drive to the house which sadly is only a model (laughs) (laughs) that was the best (laughs) so we watched this with my husband and at the exact we're at the exact same moment, both Sam and Steven go, it's only a model. <laughs> and if you are not a fan of Young Frankenstein, you really should. <gasps> Can no. we do Young Frankenstein? It's based on a book. It is based on a book. Anyways, it's a quote from Young Frankenstein and Noel no, Brooks's. It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Greatest. <laughs> no, you're right. That's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> that part you should definitely cut out because I just confused Young Frankenstein with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is, that is my nerd cred is just shot. It's just done. You know what? I've been, just I've been drinking heavily. <laughs> I'm distracted by Rupert. That's terrible. How did I get that wrong? I don't know. Uh, okay. I feel really bad. No, no. It's, it's um, good. It's good. My life is over. <laughs> that is We're a reference. not going to tell Steven. Oh, never tell my husband. Oh, he's going to listen to this, isn't he? Yeah, he is. You know what? Actually, this will be a good test if he actually listens to the podcast because he tells me he does. <laughs> So this is this is the test this of our marriage. The, this is, is like the did you shoot your first wife yes. of our marriage. I like it. I'll know if he actually listens because <laughs> if he doesn't bring this up later. Um, I was going to ask if um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was based on a book. No. But, I mean, well, it's like it's kind of based on. It's the legend of Arthur. So, I mean, there's so La many Mort different versions. We could pick one. We could do La Morte d'Arthur. Yeah. And just say that's based on it. But that's like a giant volume that's bigger than the Bible. And we could just pick a story out of it. <laughs> or we could do Young Frankenstein. And let's just do that one. I like that one. Anyways. But also Mel Brooks is really great. Yeah, he is. Um, I am like, I'm not sure I can continue. I am too embarrassed to focus. Uh, 
Okay. Where are we? <laughs> na, 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 na. It's only a model. Okay. Uh, the 1997 miniseries skips the prologue and instead begins in Monte Carlo, where our unnamed heroine is sketching and sees Maxim looking out at the sea over the cliff. And actually, both versions uh, have the second Mrs. De Winter and Maxim first meeting on the cliffs, which is romantic and sweeping as opposed to, you know, spotting each other in the dining hall of the hotel. Which I mean, is how it is in the book. It's so much more romantic in a dining hall. I've locked <laughs> eyes with many. <laughs> attractive millionaires in dining halls. I mean, so. how many college students can say, oh yeah, we met in the dining hall. Yeah, I don't think I actually can say that. No. Nope. Um, so, a few key differences between the versions. So, um, Amelia Fox's Mrs. De Winter is a much, much better artist than Joan Fontaine. Oh my god, there's this one shot. Sorry, Joan. Oh, I was like, seriously? I mean, so I don't know if the actress actually did her own sketches or if they had a props artist. They didn't cover that in the trivia on IMDb. No. So in the book, it's, you know, it's her hobby. She sketches. And like Maxim made some, makes some comment like, oh, she's rather good or something. But, you know, we don't actually know how good she is. But Joan Fontaine's <laughs> drawings in the 1940 version are so bad and childish. It's like, oh, uh, I'm not going to say my four-year-old could do better. No. But, but Rupert could. Yeah. It's an interesting choice to make. It's a, it, but uh, Amelia Fox's Mrs. DeWinter actually can sketch. Yes. Um, although the 1997 miniseries follows the book very closely and uses a lot of dialogue, there's a number of subtle tweaks and changes that make Mrs. De Winter less weak. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one who tells Mrs. Van Hopper about the engagement instead of leaving it to Maxim, which is what she does in the book yep. and in the 1940 version. Mm-hmm. Um, and she pushes for the costume party and let it, instead of letting others foster into it. Similarly, the 1997 miniseries version, Maxim is a lot less patronizing. Not that he's not patronizing at all, but it's, it's just definitely not less. Much. And I mean... Really, no one can beat Olivier for being patronizing and condescending. And he was only 10 years older than her in the movie, but he did a really good job of seeming like he was 30 years older than her. Because he wasn't acting. Oh, my God. So, in the 1997 version, when the second Mrs. De Winter asks why he is showing her charity by spending all this time with her, instead of yelling at her to get out of the car, he assures her it isn't charity and rather sadly says, if you don't believe me, tell me and I'll move on. It's a, it's a, only a few words have been changed, but it really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So it's a much gentler, kinder Maxim de Winter. Still plenty of red flags, but uh, he calls her an idiot a lot less yes. than Larry does. Ugh, Larry. And uh, also in the 1997 version, Mrs. de Winter is the one who's constantly bringing up her age mm-hmm. and referring to herself as being childish. And Maxim doesn't bring it up the way no. she does and the way he does in the in the book and in the 1940 oh version um uh to the point even in the 1997 version he makes her promise never to wear black satin but doesn't make her promise to never be 36 mm-hmm. and ladies if your man says that you have to promise to never be 36 that means he's gonna murder you when you turn 35 yeah and honestly there's nothing wrong with being 36 there's a few things wrong but it mostly has to do with like how hard it is to bend over Ugh. There is that, yeah. <laughs> um, so this was cut from the version that aired on PBS, but the uh, 1997 miniseries also features nudity. Ooh, scandal. Um, yeah, and although the topless scene is a little awkward... <laughs> I'm not sure how it fit in, really. It, it did feel a little forced. There, 
that scene aside, there actually was real chemistry between Amelia mm-hmm. Fox and Charles Dance. Like, yeah, for once. I I could understand why she would be attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I got it. Yeah. The Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier chemistry wasn't really there. No. But, like, it was, it was very clear from watching the 1997 miniseries that, like, they were going to bone. Mm-hmm. And they did it a lot. And they did it a lot. Yeah. But, like, there was sexual chemistry. Yeah. Which was nice to see because, like, the whole point of this book is, like, she's supposed to be, like, drawn to him. Yeah. She's supposed to find him attractive. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't spell it out quite as much in the book, probably because it was written in 1938. Mm-hmm. But there's a few subtle hints that, like, yeah. they were, she says they were lovers. Yep. Um... So I also have to wonder, like, did Charles Dance have something in his contract that was like, if you're going to pair me with an actual 23-year-old actress, you have to make it very clear that I'm super virile. Maybe. Maybe. I mean. 30 years older than her. Anyways, they had, I felt like they had real chemistry and I was okay with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I believed them as a couple way more than I believed Joan and Larry. Uh, the 97 miniseries also does feature a few of Mrs. De Winter's uh, fantasies, mm-hmm. her imagining what people are saying or thinking about her. Not as many as in the book, no. but at least some. But at least you get an idea of what she's going through. Exactly. Uh, one thing that I didn't enjoy about the 97 miniseries, other than the length, which you've already talked about, <laughs> um, there are flashbacks of Rebecca herself. We never see her full face. We just see pieces of her. We'll see her from the back or her just her eyes or her mouth. And I I didn't love it. My comment was, no with the flashes of Rebecca's eyes. Yeah. No. No. Stop it. No. Stop it. Just don't. It was weird. It was unnecessary. Rebecca's so much more intimidating if she's unseen. Exactly. She's All just we see is ghost. the creepy Mrs. Danvers. Ugh. Um, in the 97 version, we meet Gran. She is cut from the 1940 film. Mm-hmm. And I only bring up Gran because it is the most grumpy old English lady moment I've ever seen in my life when she goes, I want my tea! <laughs> it's amazing. It is amazing. Again, I don't feel like that's, I mean, I, it it's a Was it necessary? No. No, but it's because it's a miniseries, they had the time, so why not include it? They had three hours yes. to fill. Um, so one thing that is very different in all three versions is Rebecca's death. As you mentioned before, in the book, Maxim shoots her. Uh, in the 1940 film, they go out of their way to make it clear that Maxim lashed out at Rebecca and struck her, but her death was an accident. And her death was actually caused because when he hit her, she fell and hit her head. Yes. So it was completely unintentional. Weirdly, in the 97 version, Maxim brings a gun to the cottage, doesn't shoot her, he strangles her. Which feels like more violent and yes. And I feel like there's intentional. More, there's more evidence on the skeleton because you could break her neck. Right. So it's weird. It's super weird. Like, to shoot someone, you you pull the trigger and then you can instantly regret it. Yeah. To, to strangle someone for long enough for them to die. Yeah, and I was... From personal experience, yeah. that takes, like, yeah. several minutes. And, like, actually, I just watched a true crime episode where they said it takes seven and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. And so after seven and a half minutes, there's they're dead. Yeah. I saw a fantastic um, scene... Uh, Two actor friends of mine did of Othello. They did Desdemona's death scene. Ooh. And they did it as a fight scene. And they, that I mean, he awesome. strangled her for a long time. Wow. And it was so visceral and so impactful. And so often when you see Othello, he'd like, ah, uh, she's dead. Rupert, yep. no one cares what you think. Just lick your paper and be done with it. 
Look, Rupert doesn't like it when we talk about violence against women, and I get that. So I let's totally move on. That. Anyways, I'm not sure why the 97 version has him either. strangle There's her. There's nothing Feels... wrong with, like, being true to the book and shooting her. Right. Um, I, I do really like in the 1940 version when they're in the cottage and Maxim is telling his wife about the confrontation with Rebecca and the camera is following mm. where Rebecca would have been during that scene. Yes. Like it's really effectively mm-hmm. done. And it's so much creepier because we don't see her. Yep. Um, in the ninety-seven ver- in the nineteen ninety-seven version, uh, after uh, he tells his wife that he killed his first wife, they immediately have sex, which is odd. I wrote that. I noted me. that in my comments as well. Like it's. It's like why? Like who thinks that's a turn on people? Yeah, right. Something else that's different is in the nineteen forty version, the second Mrs. De Winter does not go with the others to see Mr. Baker, Doctor Baker. She is at home when Mrs. Danvers takes revenge and burns Manderly to the ground. And, of course, the endings of all three are different. So in the book, it ends with they see the fire. Mm-hmm. We do not know who survives, nope. if anyone survives. Mrs. Danvers' fate is unknown. Uh, in both the film and the miniseries, we see that the rest of the servants did make it out of the house, including Jasper the dog. And this is very important. Yes. Because if anything happens to the dog in a movie, I get very upset. Nothing should ever happen to the dog. Right. John Wick. <laughs> Wait, did you just spoil John Wick for me? Oh my god, it's the first two minutes of the movie. Also, I'm never going to watch it, let's be honest. <laughs> it's a really good movie. Um, kind of so in the 1940 dog. version, we see Mrs. Danvers in the master bedroom in the West Wing, trapped as the house burns down around her. In the 1997 version, Mrs. Danvers lies down on the bed holding Rebecca's nightgown. Maxim runs into the house to rescue her, physically carrying her out of the West Wing and down the stairs because he is so virile. Virile. So manly. On the stairs, he trips and they both fall to the ground. It is not clear if Mrs. Danvers survives in that version, um, but the film, the miniseries ends with a flash forward 10 years. Mr. and Mrs. DeWinter are living abroad. We get some of the narration that's Mm -hmm. in the prologue of the book. Yeah. And it's clear that Mrs. Mr. D does have scars. He walks with a cane. He wears one black glove, implying that he did suffer injuries during the fire. Uh, Mrs. D also says they will never have children. So I'm I don't not, know where that came from. I don't know what injuries he suffered in the fire. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if I want to know. Yeah. Um, so a few other things. My favorite part of the 1940 film is when Maxim is angrily walking back to the house from the beach, and he's walking so fast that he defies the laws of physics. <laughs> the matte painting behind him is moving oh, way yeah, too fast. So fast. <laughs> and it's like a bad old superhero movie. Uh, my favorite part of the 1997 version is Charles Dance in an old-timey full-body bathing suit. Oh, yeah. That will come up again. Um, there are a few similarities between the versions that I just want to bring up. Uh, all of the Beatrices are amazing. Yes, they are. Uh, both the 1940 and the 1997 version have a lot of fun playing with light. There's a there's a, oh, a, a film point. noir feeling in, in both of them. Mm-hmm. Certainly the 1940 Rebecca, it's black and white, so they mm-hmm. really and it's, uh, play, it's Hitchcock, play it out. so it, it, like that is what he does. That is what Hitchcock does. Yeah. But the 1997 version as well, they have some really great moments where the shots really dark, and then there'll just be a splash of light across Diana Rigg's eyes, mm-hmm. or yep. Um, you know, they do a similar effect uh, on Laurence Olivier's face several times in the 1940 version. So it's some really interesting yeah. uh, choices there. There are also a few trivia items I want to bring up. Ooh, trivia! So the 1940 film won the Oscars for Best Picture and Best Cinematography, and all three of the main actors were were and the director were nominated, although none of them won that year. 
Uh, the gossip is that Larry Olivier was a total jerk to Joan Fontaine on set because he had wanted his girlfriend Vivian Lee to play the part. That might be why they had no chemistry. It could be. And ultimately, she might have had better facial expressions than Joan Fontaine. Poor Joan Fontaine. I mean, so if you watch the 1940 version, there is an acting style that is no longer in vogue. No. So it's hard because you're judging a film that's 80 years old on modern acting styles. But it does feel very dated. And right. Joan Fontaine's gasps she, are a little cheesy. And it's like, I I watch and adore movies from that time period all the time. Sure. But for whatever reason, like, her choices in this movie really stuck out at me. Yeah. More so than any movie I've seen from that time period. And I yeah. don't know why. It doesn't feel great. No. I'm going to assume it's not Joan Fontaine's best work. Yes. Uh, so she did not win the Oscar that year. But the following year, she was in another Hitchcock film and won... And famously, this was the final straw in the difficult relationship between her and her sister, Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland was also nominated in 1941, lost to her sister, and the two did not speak for decades after that. Yep. Uh, another fun uh, bit of trivia, Amelia Fox, who played the second Mrs. Dewinter in 1997, is the daughter of actress Joanna David, who played the same role in a 1979 miniseries. Oh, yeah. right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And um, George Sanders, who was absolutely perfect as Jack oh Vanilla my God, in the 1940 he version. He was so good as Jack He Vanilla. was my favorite character. He was perfectly cast. Yep. He did the voice for Shere Khan in The Jungle yeah, Book. Yeah, he did. I was like, the whole movie, I was like, why do I know why that voice? Why is his voice so familiar? Why do I know that voice? Because he's Shere Khan. He's Shere Khan. That's why. He, he, and he's fantastic as Shere Khan. He is a great Jack Favelle. He's a great Shere Khan. Yep. And really, isn't that... That's what matters. Uh, all of us could hope to have the same thing said of us. Yeah, exactly. So do you want to have some fun and games, Sam? Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. So uh, I think it's time for some heartthrobs and hairdos. <laughs> Who are your top three hotties? All right. So despite his condescension, Lawrence Olivier does go on that list because you know what? The man can rock a tux. He really can. He really can. Mm-hmm. And um, Charles Dance. Oh. I, he is? Yeah. Nice. I would I would take that. Mm-hmm. Um and I went back and forth about this, but I am gonna say that Jonathan Cake, who played uh Favelle in the nineteen ninety seven yes. miniseries, is actually quite handsome. Hey. As long as he does not open his mouth. And as long as he combs his hair. Yeah. When he starts talking he becomes unattractive. Ugh. But as long as he's quiet, yes. he was quite cute. Mm-hmm. Who are your hotties? I got nothing. No hotties? No. I couldn't, like, the condescension of Laurence Olivier was just driving me crazy. And his little stash. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't like the tiny, I tiny mustache? not like the little stash. No, <laughs> no. And normally, like, I, you know, I can look past the condescension. Tiny mustaches? No, no. Oh, okay, the condescension. Never look past those. The condensate, like, and I can, but I was like, that combined with the stash, and I was just like, no. I can take condescension or a tiny mustache, but not both. Not both. So Charles Dance didn't have a tiny mustache, Sam. And, like, for whatever reason... um, Do you just not like gingers? No. I just couldn't stop seeing Tywin Lannister. Who is also super sexy. I don't understand your problem. I would not... I would be, like, with Tywin Lannister, I was like, oh, yeah. You found... You he found like, Tywin Lannister more attractive than No, Max not attractive, like more mentory. Like I want to okay. badass like you do. Hmm. But with like I liked his maxim in that he was not as patronizing. Right. But again, but I he's was still like a little difficult. Yeah, but at the same time it was just it was 
I was just like, no, like your chemistry with Amelia Fox is better. I don't see it happening. But you don't want it. No, I don't want it. Um, so in Golden Child, he is actually a demon. Saddam Nunsi. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> but Charles Dance is a bad guy, and he's so evil, and it's mm. dripping like almost Tim Curry levels of <gasps> dripping with oh. evil. And it's see, it's I a, have to see Golden Child. You haven't seen it. Mm-mm. Sam, how many times have you wasted your life watching The Highlander and you haven't seen Golden Child? Eddie Murphy. That is not a waste of my life. Charles Dance. Uh, Tex Cobb. <laughs> some other people. A really terrible Dragon Lady special effect. Oh, yeah, oh you're my really God. selling it right now. Oh, they're, the guy who plays the monk. What is that actor's name? I'm never going to remember the it. The monk. There's a Tibetan monk. Nice. They go, Eddie Murphy goes to Tibet to find a magic <laughs> knife. It's this whole sequence. He, like, rips apart Saddam Nunsi, the demon, while going through airport security and mocks him. And it's an amazing... I I don't want to talk about Rebecca anymore. I just want to talk about the golden child. No. Anyways. Anyways. Charles Dance has a beautiful, rich, deep-speaking voice. He does. And he's And fantastic. I feel like that's a lot of what... I find attractive about him. That's fair. That's and he's totally just fair. so virile. Oh, clearly. so virile. Uh, <laughs> so I've been slightly distracted. What are your top three outfits? Um, so they're actually all from the first... The movie, 1940 the version? The 1940 version. Okay. Um, so John, Joan Fontaine's traveling outfit, when she's first traveling from the honeymoon to Manderley. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice it, little yeah. suit and um, uh, skirt jacket. Right? And like, I like the hat, too. Um... Her dress at her first dinner at Manderley, mm-hmm. I thought was very nice. Um, and then actually her outfit at the inquest. I really like that. Yeah. So I like her suit. I actually have a little bit of an issue with this because I think that they made Joan Fontaine's Mrs. De Winter too glamorous. Yes. Like in the book, she talks about how her clothes don't fit and how like she and Maxim didn't take the time to buy her a new wardrobe, even yeah. though he has the money to. Yeah, no, they and definitely did a better Joan job. Joan Fontaine actually has a lot of really elegant outfits. So yeah, she does. It's a little... That's why they're my favorites, because they're pretty, and they shouldn't be. Yeah, they're actually too pretty. <laughs> I feel like in the second movie, her clothes aren't quite as glamorous, Which is why I have from them. And, her, and, like, Joan Fontaine's hair is too nice. Yeah, it's way Like, too in the nice. book, it's very clear she has, like, just kind of, like, boring hair. Yeah. yeah. And, again, the 97 version, it's straight. Yeah. Did you notice how, like, in the 97 version, like, when before she's married... It was the part was right in the middle, and then when she got married, when she got her hair done, they changed the part to the side to make her look more to look make her look older. Having sex will do that to you. It will yeah. repart your hair for it you. Really well. Mm-hmm. Um. So actually, my top outfits her her evening gown that first night in Manderley, that floral evening gown is also on my list. Oh, nice. Um. Also from the 1940 version, Maxim when he's wearing a a tux with a coat and a turned up collar yeah. over it. I know Laurence Olivier is a condescend. Well, he's dead, but yes. he was condescending, and there's lots to complain about. But God damn, he rocked a tux and he with a really pop did. collar. Oh, it's good. Um, my third outfit is Maxim's old timey bathing suit from the '97 <laughs> version. Um, I do want to give an honorable mention to Mrs. Van Hopper's dinner ensemble in the '97 miniseries. Yeah. So, I do think that the Mrs. Van Hopper in the 1940 version is closer to the way the yes. character's written in the book. She's yes, she is. frumpy. Mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway is too pretty. She is. But, but her performance at Mrs. Van Hopper fantastic. is great. Yep. Um, 
She is super fierce. Mm -hmm. That first outfit is beautiful. Yep. And I would kill i would kill the first mrs de winter for mrs van hopper's hotel room yes it is oh my god so beautiful i don't understand it's awesome <laughs> so that was an honorable mention very nice very uh nice. So time for quizzes and questions yeah okay who would win in a cage match dame diana rigg as mrs danvers or glenn close as aunt edith de Havilland? oh <gasps> that is a tough one right I have a good question. I think it's Glenn Close. Really? I'm going to go with Glenn Close. All right. Tell me why. Um, because Glenn Close can shoot a gun. <laughs> I think Glenn Close uh, can probably move a little faster than Mrs. Danvers. Because she's wearing jodhpurs, whereas mm-hmm. Mrs. Danvers is wearing like a floor-length Her dress. dress. Mm-hmm. And while Mrs. Danvers is creepier... I, like, I just don't think she has quite as much urgency. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel, feel like if Glenn Close... And I am talking about Glenn Close, not her character. I feel like she can move like a snake. <laughs> she's here. She's there. She's like a cobra. Right. And I feel like Mrs. Danvers, like, her her entire shtick is she tries to get you to take care of yourself for her so she doesn't have to get her hands dirty. Yeah, it's a lot of psychological warfare, yes. which I just don't see working on someone like no. Edith um, de Havilland, Edith. or Glenn Close, rather, would be like, no, 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 bitch, we're getting violent. Let's go. Right. Yep. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna give that one to Glenn Close. Edith. Very nice. That Very was a nice. great question. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so then we kind of touched on this a little bit, but why isn't Rebecca allowed to be shot in the miniseries version? I don't know. They seem to stick so closely to most of the other details in the book, no matter how small. Organ grinder, I'm looking oh, at you. But what? <laughs> they had to have the organ grinder. Not only that, but they had to have a standalone I mean, shot. So we know why they changed it in the. In the 1940 yes. version, because yes. it was the Hayes Code. I think it's the well, yeah, the Hayes Code or one of the codes. Like you can't have the main care, you can't have the the main hero be a murderer. And also, like, I can understand the narrative perspective. Like, we want to make him more appealing to the audience so that he accidentally kills his right. wife. Like, even if there wasn't a code right. behind it. But yeah, why in the 97 version did they decide that shooting her was not okay i don't know i don't understand yeah, i don't understand how shoot how strangling her is less horrific than shooting her <sighs> yeah how, how is he supposed to be more sympathetic by strangling her yeah that's so much more right it's so Ugh. much more Ugh. yeah it's, it's, more it's a much more horrible way to kill someone yeah yeah yep. i mean maybe it's because it shows how much he hates her that he's willing to do that yeah but then know. that actually i feel like that paints the character in a direction we don't yes. necessarily want to go exactly And then final question. Why do people make such abominable choices for costume parties? (laughs) Do you mean all of the blackface? Yes. All of the racist, misogynistic choices. No matter what time period. I don't know if you've paid attention to the news lately, Sam. Well, that's why I'm asking this question. But this has come up recently. Why do you do it? And people are still thinking blackface is funny and cute. It's not funny. It's It's never been funny. It's not funny. It's not cute. Don't do blackface, don't do brown face, don't do any face. Just don't do any appropriation or racist things. Ugh. If you're so going to do a Black Panther character, wear a superhero outfit, don't wear something that is cultural appropriation. Exactly. So what are your questions? All right, so, Sam, my question for you. Your rich, handsome husband killed his first wife. Is it a deal breaker? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no explanation necessary. Just, no. No, it's not a deal breaker. <laughs> Uh, all right, I would like to have a little speculation. Okay, okay. So, Maxim says that 
on their honeymoon on that cliff, Rebecca tells her horrible things that he will never repeat. What do you think are the horrible things she told her about himself? <gasps> okay. Um, well, first is that she wasn't a virgin in their wedding bed, in their marriage bed. Mm-hmm. Um, two, she had an abortion. Oh. Three. She was really a dude. She, yeah. Which might contradict too, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> um, four. That she slept with her father. Oh. Oh. I mean, you asked horrible things. I'm trying okay, to think no, of the it, worst things ever. Continue on, Sam. Leave your something somethings open. <laughs> Wide open. Six. Um, she slept with her mother. <laughs> and her brother. And her gran. Oh, okay. I'm going to stop you now. <laughs> this is like an Alan Moore book at this point. <laughs> DC Andrews. I'm not okay with this. <laughs> All right. And lastly, um, quite recently, in fact, like this week, uh, it was announced that they are making another version of Rebecca. <laughs> and the casting of the leads is um, <clears throat> Army Hammer as Maxim. Army Hammer is 32. So <laughs> clearly not our first choice. No. <clears throat> if you could see my face right now, you'd all know that. Sam's face could open a something something. It's, it's pretty sour. So uh, no offense to Army Hammer. He is, I think, a very talented no. actor. And honestly... Uh, he is quite tall and Chad handsomely. Yes. But at least 10 years too young to play this part. Yeah. I mean, and to be fair, Larry Olivier was the same age when he played Maxim de Winter. And he wasn't 32, was he? He was 33. Really? Well, he plays yeah. older. He does. And, like, I'm sure they could make Army Hammer look older by makeup or something or whatever. My biggest problem is Lily James is 29. Yeah, she's three years younger than There are him. only three years difference between the two of them. I'm sorry. It you be... cannot make them yeah. act a 21-year age difference. Well, there's if, only... okay, but if they if they actually cast someone 20 years younger than Army Hammer, they have to cast a 10-year-old. Exactly. So, like, at least... Which, you know what? That would difference. be that would be gross. That would be really gross. <laughs> but you have to have a little bit, like, their their life experiences are too close together where, I'm sorry, there is n- there's no way you're that good an actor that you can make that life experience be 21 years. Yeah. When it's only three years in actuality. Like, I think it's actually kind of a miracle that Amelia Fox, who was 23, and mm-hmm. Charles Dance, who was, like, 50, He was in his 50s. Like, there's 30 that years. That they actually did have chemistry. Yeah. Like, that's... That's amazing. So, anyways, my question is... If you were casting Rebecca in 2018, who would you oh. cast instead of Army Hammer? Hmm. Yeah, no, let's see. No, no, I don't even know. I don't even know who, like, the right age is right now. Because everybody's either in their 50s or 60s. Or in their 30s. So you have to think of an actor who's in his 40s. <laughs> I don't know any. I'm sure you do. Just well, can't no. think of any. I mean, no, David Tennant's kind of too gangly. But David uh, Tennant could do it. He could pull it off. He could totally pull it off. I'd allow him to pull it off. Yeah. Um. So David Tennant or Jack Davenport. 
Oh. Yeah. All right, that's it. That's home calling. Jack Davenport. Mm-hmm. He's going to be my maxim. You know who might be a good maxim? J.J. Field. Yes, him as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he can pull off the... He would definitely be able to pull it off. Uh, aristocratic on the surface, mm-hmm. but hidden depths and yep. uh, pain. Yep, so either one of them. Um, he might be a little too old, but you know who else might be good? Uh, David Strathern. Oh, yeah. He's a little bit more like the Charles Dance direction of things, but... David Morrissey. Oh. I wouldn't be surprised if he's already done it. Right? But he could do it again. Yep. These are all excellent all right, choices. <laughs> anybody other than Army Hammer. I mean, not anybody. I can Anyone name... we've named. I would not cast Johnny Depp. Oh, God. I wouldn't cast him in anything. No. They need to stop with that. Yeah, people... Mm. It's a walking hat. <laughs> Still the best joke I ever came up with. It's the best. It was your best joke, and then you said, leave your something, something's open. And now that's your new best joke. Um, do you want to do some fake awards? Woohoo! Let's do it! So who's your Jeff Goldblum award go to? My Jeff Goldblum award goes to the almost convincing, but not really, model of Manderley. <laughs> reading in the trivia they're like they couldn't find the right house for manderley so they built a model it's really good and i'm like no it's clearly a model (laughs) come on you guys like there really aren't any houses in england really oh my god they clearly found one for the miniseries yeah uh who's who gets your jeff goldblum award (laughs) uh so my jeff goldblum award goes to all of joan fontaine's grimaces (laughs) because they were kind of sexy but not really yeah exactly they would scare off a (laughs) t-rex you could tell the t-rex had bitten her buttons off Oh, my God. <laughs> That's how you know it's a lady T-Rex. Uh, this is good. We're referencing the first episode right? here. Get some callbacks. Uh, I have a few more awards. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, the Patronizing Award goes to Larry Olivier. Nice. Uh, the Continuity Fail Award goes to the fast-moving background and Max and <laughs> back to the house. And the Star Wars Cameo Award goes to Coroner Palpatine. Nice. <laughs> I, I did manage to shout out in the middle of the miniseries Emperor Palpatine <laughs> who also was in another previous episode he was in Sleepy Hollow yes he was we've been, we've made enough episodes now that we keep seeing the same actors over and over again I mean what does that say about our movie tastes uh, that we have excellent movie taste okay good that's what I thought clearly yeah excellent uh, what are the rest of your awards Sam uh, so I don't think you're going to like this one, um, but the absolutely unnecessary award goes to Charles Dance's gratuitous running on the beach in his bathing costume. <laughs> his old-timey bathing suit is so ridiculous. Uh, I was just like, oh god, no! I'm like, this is this is this is this is how it's gonna go. We're all downhill from here. <laughs> And that was like 20 minutes in. <laughs> three hour mini series. <laughs> and then my last award is the award for Did You Really Need to Include This? Goes to the shot of the organ grinder after the inquest. Wait, that goes to the organ grinder, not to like the nudity that they tacked on? <laughs> I mean, Twice? There could they be- had two different naked sex scenes. There could be a number of this, but the organ grinder really stuck out. I would say those are also organ grinder scenes, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh, yes. Yes, they were. So next episode, we are killing some bugs with the roughnecks in Starship Troopers, based on the award-winning sci-fi novel by Robert Heinlein. 
I promised my dad in 1997 that if he took me to see the movie, I would read the book. And I am finally getting around to it. You're welcome, Tim. Oh, this is a good test to see if my dad's listening. caught up to all the episodes. <laughs> I like to test my loved ones. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> uh, so if you like our show, and uh, whether or not you're in my family or not, uh, you can help us spread the word. Rate and review on iTunes. Tell your friends, coworkers, and distant relatives how great Adapted with Anna and Sam is. What better topic is there for the Thanksgiving table than the Jeff Goldblum Award? Right. I totally agree. So let us know how it goes. We want to hear from you and send your questions, comments, and six degrees to AdaptedWithAnnaAndSam at gmail.com. Or you can also post them on Facebook. You can find us at AdaptedWithAnnaAndSam. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AdoptedPodcast. Let's keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna, and I wish Back to the Future Part 3 was based on a book. (laughs) I'm Sam, and I wish Last Action Hero was based on a book. Bye. Bye!